This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Part 3, Applications Chapter 8, The Church and the Great Commission And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22-23 As I pointed out earlier, all theological and biblical truth necessarily has practical implications. The Bible is God's Word given to direct us in the paths of righteousness. In the Christian life, theory is foundational to practice, or to put it in biblical terms, truth is foundational to sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. John 17, 17. God has ordained three basic institutions in society, the church, the family, and the state. A biblical understanding of their respective roles and interrelationships is fundamental to developing a Christian worldview. The fulfilling of the Great Commission in history will require not only a proper understanding of each of these institutions, but also concerned involvement in each. I now turn briefly to consider a few practical directives for promoting the truths contained in the Commission. What, then, are some initial practical applications of the Great Commission for each of the three fundamental institutions? In this chapter, I will focus on the Church. In 1981, the Association of Reformation Churches published a proposed additional chapter to its confessional statement. The chapter was entitled, Of the Christian Mission. Paragraph 4 of that revision reads, As a ministry of worship, the mission of the church is to organize the communal praise of the saints. As a ministry of redemptive grace, the church has been given the mission of calling men back into full fellowship with the Creator. The church proclaims the word of God. To those outside the kingdom, she calls for repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. To those within, she calls for obedience and growth in grace in every sphere of life. While the church must not usurp the duties of state and family, she must witness prophetically to those laboring in those institutions, calling on them in the name of God to conform their labors to the requirements of Scripture. Since Christ has promised to his kingdom a glorious future, when all nations will flow to the house of the Lord, the growth of the church is usually to be expected. This growth, however, is to be accomplished not through any means which may come to hand, but only through means which are consonant with Holy Scripture. With all the recent negative publicity regarding the misdeeds of certain televangelists and theological distortions by others, the Church of Jesus Christ is suffering a credibility and integrity crisis. But defection from church attendance did not begin in the late 1980s with those errant men. It has for a number of decades been a problem in America. Church is seen as optional to the Christian life by too many Christians today. Many who profess to be Christians know too little of devoted commitment to Christ. They seem oblivious to the demands of the Great Commission regarding discipleship. What, then, should be the Christian's approach to church life as he submits himself to Christ under the Great Commission? 1. Commitment to the local church. A major and indispensable aspect of our commitment to Christ involves our membership in, and attendance at, worship in, and service through the local church. 
Church attendance and membership is expected and obligated on several grounds. A. Christ established the church as part of his ongoing plan for his people. B. Christ died for his church, evidencing a great love and concern for it. C. The church is the central place God has ordained for Christian fellowship and service. D. Church attendance puts us under the ministry of doctrine for our spiritual growth. E. Christ has ordained church officers to govern his people. F. Christ has given spiritual disciplinary power to the officers of the church for the good of his people. G. God has given the sacraments only to the church. The Lord's Supper specifically is designated for the corporate communion among God's people. H. God clearly commands us not to forsake attending church. 2. Engagement in worship. Christ expects his people to worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 Corporately in the fellowship of God's people. Worship is man's highest calling. It is to be both generic and specific. That is, worship is to be engaged in everyday life as well as specific formal exercise on the Lord's Day. The various elements of Christian worship are to be engaged with the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark 12.30 Not while asleep, in a trance, or fidgeting while wandering about lunch. The manner of worship is legislated by God in Scripture. We must approach the covenant God on His terms. Leviticus 10.1 and 2 Hymns, prayers, offerings, exhortations, confessions, Scripture readings, Sermons and other aspects of worship are not to be performed by mere rote reflex. They are to be engaged with devotion as an unto the Lord. In other words, we must remember that Christ is with us all the days, Matthew 28, 20, including while we worship. We are to rejoice in the baptism of new converts as an aspect of our worship and as we witness the discipling of the nations, Matthew 28, 19. 3. Training in the Truth the Christians should seek a church that promotes sound doctrine and the development of a Christian worldview based on biblical teaching. The church should be a covenant community fellowship committed to the historical creeds of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, etc. It should not be associated with the National World Council of Churches. It should have a solid educational program. The piecemeal Christian faith so widespread today does not measure up to the calling of discipling toward a Christian culture. Matthew 28:19. The church should actively train people to submit to Christ's authority, Matthew 28.18, and work, Matthew 28.19.20. As a leading officer in the church, Paul was concerned to promote the whole counsel of God, Acts 20.27. Several programs can be used to promote education in the truth. These include catechetical training, a church library, a small group book of the month fellowship, and discussion program, a local theological seminary program for members and the community, and either the setting up of or supporting of an already established Christian day school. 4. Training in hierarchical covenantalism. The church is to be composed of a system of courts designed to locate responsibility and resolve problems as Christ's people have his authority ministered to them. The influence of the democratic spirit and of volunteerism are alive and well in American Christianity. And this is unfortunate. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is viewed by many as so many islands in the stream of history, unconnected and unconnectable. Bold claims to independency are proudly displayed on thousands of church signs across the land. Yet the scripture has ordained a covenantal government of elected hierarchical rule in the church, a rule pattern on the Old Testament revelation, Exodus 18:19-23, Deuteronomy 1:13-15. In the Old Testament, elders possessed jurisdictional authority, Exodus 12:21, and were organized into graduated levels of courts, Deuteronomy 1:15. The New Testament office of rulership in the church even adopts the same name as the Old Testament office, elder. 
1 Timothy 3.1. We needed to teach our churches of the divinely ordained system of covenantal government in the church. In the New Testament church, each church was to have a plurality of elders. Acts 14.23, Titus 1.5. New Testament elders are vested with real governmental authority, not exercised by the congregation at large, as the following indicate. 1. Though Christ ultimately builds his church, he gave its keys to men to exercise binding authority. Matthew 16.18-19. 2. There is a gift of government given to some, not all Christians. Romans 12.6-8. 1 Corinthians 12:28, 3. Titles expressive of authoritative power are given to some, not all Christians. 1 Timothy 3, 1, 2, and 6, chapter 5, verse 19. 4. Office is granted by divine appointment and entered by solemn rite. It is not automatic with conversion. 1 Timothy 4, 14, 5, 22. 5. The functions of office are expressive of real authority. Acts 20, 28. This hierarchical authority is graduated into lower and higher courts, having authority over individual and multiple congregations. The classic illustration of this is found in Acts 15. There we discover the church functioning hierarchically to resolve a doctrinal dispute in a particular church at Antioch, Acts 15, 1 and 2. The matter was sent by representatives to a trial before a joint council in Jerusalem, Acts 15, 2. The matter was debated before the entire council, Acts 15, 4-19. The conclusion of this non-local court action was sent back down to the court of original jurisdiction, Acts 15, 20-23. It was considered binding upon the Antiochian church, Acts 15, 28, and was sent to other churches for their instruction, Acts 16, 4. Discipling in regard to the nature and structure of church government is important for the vitality of the Christian faith in itself. What is more, the divinely ordinated government of the church is to be a model for the civil government as well. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. 5. Promotion of Christ's cause. And that the church is commanded to go into the world, Matthew 28, 19. It should do so in the name of the triune God, Matthew 28, 19b. There are a number of opportunities for local evangelistic outreach for the church. Friendship evangelism. Bible conferences, seminars. Radio and or television ministry tape ministry, campus outreach, newsletter ministry, and more. Contrary to much church growth advocacy, however, these should be employed to diffuse light, Matthew 5.14, not to entertain the carnal masses. In friendship evangelism, for instance, the church is to engage its members in evangelistic outreach through one of the most natural and successful means of evangelism, friendship associations through personal acquaintances and family members. Statistically, it is reported that the average Christian knows 8.4 unchurched individuals. These are prime targets for friendly overtures by Christians. Furthermore, most Christians today can trace their initial point of contact with Christ through friends and families. Friendship evangelism methodology is really quite simple. In special training sessions, the church should have each member jot down the names of unchurched acquaintances. These names should be made the matter of specific long-term prayer. A few of these names should be especially set apart by each individual for the purpose of building bridges, i.e. nurturing friendships, ties by various means. The ultimate goal of these strengthened ties should be eventually to confront them with the gospel claims, either directly or by merely inviting to take them to church with you. 6. Service in the world. Although the church is not of the world, it is in it, and must make her presence felt as salt in the earth. Matthew 5.13 this will involve organizing a truly functional diaconal ministry of social concern and outreach in the name of Christ.
Again, this promotes a biblical model for social concern and Christian culture building, Matthew 28:19. Also, the church should pray about and study social and political issues and encourage social political involvement through letter-writing campaigns and other means. Of course, there is a need to be careful not to endorse candidates or become too political. In America's colonial history, the church played an important role as a source of direction and information regarding social and civil affairs. Unfortunately, the church today is too often a study in irrelevance. Yet Christ calls his church to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13-14 Hence, Paul's appointment to take the gospel to nations and kings. Acts 9, 15 The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.